today's reading is from Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, if the day ever comes when Theresa May gets a chance to put Brexit behind her and get on with her own agenda for running the country, one of the issues that apparently would be high on her priority list is that of social mobility. She wants to develop a culture in which people have genuine opportunities to improve their position in life rather than finding themselves helplessly trapped and unable to move on or to make progress. She's not the first Prime Minister to say this is what uh, he or she wants to do. I'm sure she won't be the last, as people struggle to encourage freedom of movement upwards. They want them to go upwards rather than downwards in society. And it's a good thing to aim for. And modern Western culture is one of the few cultures, globally and historically, where such a thing is even possible. In the ancient world, by and large... Social mobility within your own lifetime was just out of the question. You lived in a highly stratified society where the idea or possibility of self-advancement simply wasn't on the agenda. You were born, you lived, you died as you were born. Yet there were exceptions. Here and there, particularly in some cities, there was a possibility of bucking the trend. And Philippi arguably was one such place where if you played your cards right, you could actually get on a bit and make some real progress in life. One of the reasons was, historically, the city was full of slaves who had been freed. And if you were freed with a great deal of money behind you, that actually shifted the possibilities of what you could do with your life. And Philippi, historically, was full of people like that. And arguably, there was some kind of legacy of that that endured down to Paul's day. If there was a place where you wanted to realise ambition, if you wanted to get on a bit, 
Philippi was the place to be. According to Joseph Hellerman, people who lived in Philippi and the surrounding district were obsessed with questions of honour and status. And he points to the relatively high number of inscriptions that are found on monuments in the area. He says that aristocracy had an incessant desire to proclaim their status throughout the colony by getting their name on a plinth somewhere. And from the inscriptions, you can track people's progress up through the ranks to the highest echelons of civic society. And such was the culture of the city, actually, that even those who were further down, not part of the elite, cherished hopes that they would be able to improve their own standing and position in society. In the Book of Acts, you can see Lydia, a woman from Thyatira who traded in purple. She was running her business out of Philippi, perhaps because there was the scope to make a bit of money there. And when Paul tells the Philippians that they need to avoid acting from such motives of selfish ambition or vain conceit, then that implies there was the scope actually to indulge such ambitions in Philippi. Not necessarily just in the church, but also in society as well. There were people who had the scope and the opportunity and more than half an eye on feathering their own nest as much as possible. But to put a damper on all of that... Paul challenges this mindset head on when he tells them they should have the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who exemplified an attitude of complete humility. Jesus said, didn't he, whoever is humble will be exalted, and whoever exalts himself will end up being brought low. That's how it works in God's kingdom, that's how it works in God's sight, and Jesus always practiced what he preached. And Paul wants the Philippians, living as they did in the society, preoccupied with issues of status, to have a distinctly Christ-like outlook on life. Not to be aspiring to the heights like everybody else in the city was, but actually being willing to be humble as Jesus was. Not to be shaped by the culture in which they lived, but to be shaped by the kingdom that was in their hearts and the eternal hope that they had. In Isaiah 40, God asks, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Yeah, when it comes to measuring social status, you don't get any higher than God. He is in a league all of his own. When it comes to being exalted, he's the one who put the stars of heaven in their places. Even the emperor, the greatest man on earth, didn't go too far in terms of comparing himself with God. There were some who ascribed to the emperor the honour of being a son of God. And they liked to be thought of being kind of divine after they died. But by and large, even they were a bit wary of being kind of regarded as, as divine in their own right, in their own lifetime. But the plain and undeniable truth of the matter was that however high and exalted your status in the eyes of other people might be, God, well, God was way up there way beyond anything you could ever aspire to or achieve. So to say, as Paul does at the start of the Philippian hymn, that Jesus was equal with God, is startling, to say the least. Ordinary carpenter from the middle of nowhere, Nazareth, he was equal with God. That is, that is a bit mind-boggling and a bit mind-blowing. There are at least 
20 different points of view on how Paul's language about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8 should be understood. I don't preach on it very often because I'm not sure I understand it either. But the NRSV arguably, arguably comes closest to capturing the nuance of Paul's meaning here. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God as something to be exploited. He had equality with God. He was up there. He had immeasurably high status. But he didn't take advantage of that. He didn't use it, that status, for his own ends. Instead, remarkably, amazingly, he emptied himself. Wasn't full of himself. He emptied himself. Took the form of a slave. Being born in human likeness. It's easy, perhaps, for us to miss the full extent of the debasement that Paul depicts here. From equality with God, immeasurably high, to the status of a slave. Which everybody knew was the lowest of the low. From having everything at your disposal, to having no rights whatsoever. (coughs) That was the effect of the Incarnation. That God, the omnipotent creator of everything, should be born into poverty as a helpless baby. Emptying himself completely of power to become dependent on his mother. Perhaps we can't quite get our heads around that because the degree of degradation is so great that we just read the words without being dumbfounded by them. But when you start to understand that it is mind-boggling, Paul describes the total and abject debasement of God. But he doesn't finish there, and nor did Jesus. Because once Jesus had been born, well, after Christmas comes Easter, and after we celebrate the birth of Christ, we commemorate his death. As the Son of God plums new depths of humiliation. Once Jesus was found in human form, he humbled himself still further and became obedient to the point of death, and not just any death, but dying on a cross. The most shameful and degrading death of all. The form of torture and execution that was reserved only for the lowest of the low. Rebels and slaves, nobodies. Crucifixion dehumanised its victims by turning them into objects of utter contempt. So if the incarnation was unthinkable, the crucifixion was even more so. Yet Paul pulls no punches in describing Jesus' descent from equality with God to the depths of humiliation. And the extent of his degradation is such that it totally eclipses our preoccupation with climbing one or two rungs up the social ladder. In terms of equality with God, Jesus had more than we could ever wish or aspire to. But he gave it all up. Laid it all aside. Emptied himself completely and utterly for our sake. And in so doing, Jesus showed a humility that doesn't come naturally or easily to us. But it is fundamentally part of what God is like. Because because part of the nature of God actually is to be a servant. The submission that's existed between each other, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, is expressed in the way in which God deals with the world. When Jesus said the Son of Man um, didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many... He wasn't saying, well, this isn't what God's like, but I'm doing a new thing here. He is saying, you know, in terms of the way I live, this is what God is really like. 
It is perhaps part of our own endemic insecurity that we need to fight our way up, to compare ourselves with other people and find people that we are better than. Our fragile pride likes to exalt ourselves at other people's expense. No one likes being looked down on by anybody else. And the less we like it, the more we seek some kind of vantage point from which we can at least look down on somebody else and we reassure ourselves that we are not absolutely the bottom of the pile. We do this as individuals. We do it as societies. It's in times of social upheaval and insecurity that societies tend to identify groups of people who are marginalised, whom they can blame for all their ills and so find justification for giving them a hard time. Because we're in trouble, but if we can find somebody else to blame and look down on, that will make us feel better. It's how humanity works at its worst. And so the more we indulge selfish ambition and vain conceit, the more we look for reasons to regard other people as being inferior to us. But Paul challenges that attitude head on. As he urges the Philippians to do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but instead to regard other people, to look at other people as being better than themselves. Paul uses the same word when he talks about Jesus not regarding equality with God as something to be exploited. How we look at ourselves, how we look at other people. Jesus had equality with God, yet he laid it aside for our sakes. Jesus was and is immeasurably greater than us, yet for our sake he was prepared to empty himself to the point of giving up his life on a cross. Knowing who he was and knowing what we are, he humbled himself for us and sacrificed all that he had for the sake of the least. Greatness is shown in the willingness to be humble. We sometimes have a false sense of humility. We pretend that we're not really good at anything, or we downplay our achievements. It's not the kind of attitude that Paul is talking about here. Jesus knew who he was. He knew what he was capable of. He didn't pretend, oh, I'm not really God, oh, I'm not really omnipotent, I can't really do that. He was who he was. He could do what he did. But he humbled himself for our sake. It's the way he treated us that Paul looks for us to imitate in terms of the way we treat others in imitation of him. Setting aside selfish ambition and vain conceit in favour of considering others better than ourselves entails a complete reorientation of our focus away from me to those around me. What matters isn't what other people think of me, what matters is how I treat you. I've said it before, but it bears repetition. I like what C.S. Lewis had to say on the subject. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's a lack of preoccupation with where I rank in the pecking order, a concern with who is doing better than me, or who is threatening to leapfrog my position in whatever league table it is I use to assess how well I'm doing. It's about replacing the closed fist of grasping with the open hand of giving. And of course there's a play on words and C.S. Lewis is saying, if I think of myself less, that will make me selfless. This is the attitude that Christ literally embodied when he humbled himself, emptying himself to become a human being. 
exchanging his throne for a cross. And it's an attitude that we are called to humiliate, to, to imitate. Does all this mean that there's no room for ambition? That there's something wrong with the desire to succeed or do well? I don't think so. God gave us gifts and abilities, and I believe that his heart is thrilled when we succeed as much as ours is, because he delights to see us to make the most of our lives. He wants us to do well. Yet we are fallen, sinful human beings in a fallen and sinful world. And that means that the God-given sense of pride in our achievements can result in vanity, which is described in my Chambers Dictionary as being pettily self-complacent, valuing oneself inordinately on some trivial personal distinction, being conceited. There is a right place for thinking, I'm pleased with what I've done, so long as that doesn't degenerate into exalting ourselves at other people's expense and regarding others as being beneath us and being too proud to humble ourselves when the opportunity arises. Conceit, vanity, these attitudes don't have a place in us as followers of Jesus Christ. He had all we could ever aspire to in terms of status, but he gave it all up for our sake. And when status becomes our main preoccupation, what do other people think of me? We have got our priorities fundamentally wrong because what matters is how we treat other people. And in that respect, Jesus sets us the supreme example because he gave up all he had to be our saviour, plumbing the depths of degradation to meet us, whoever we are, at our very lowest point. Because however low, however low we are, however far we've fallen, however we feel debased and degraded, Jesus is there at that lowest point to meet us, to identify with us, to be one with us, and from there to lift us up. He died our death with us. He died our death for us. So that through his resurrection we might be empowered to walk in units of life here and now and have the hope of eternal life beyond the grave. And it's because he did that, because he emptied himself, because he went to the lowest point, that God gave him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.